1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm reading verses 10 to 16, our focus being on verses 10 to 12. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, were brethren, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. As the grass withers and the flower fades, God's inerrant word abides forever. And may he bless this now to us as we hear it. James chapter 3 verse 1 begins with one of those ominous warnings of scripture, being that not many of you should seek to be teachers because you are going to have a worse judgment. In other words, uh, God has something particularly planned for those who would occupy that place of rule and authority, of teaching and expounding his word uh, before his people. I want to back up and just say this in, in light of what's coming. This, last week and this week's messages are those kind of messages that address the role that I am occupying before you as a minister. So it's a bit challenging to preach about what I am called to do and to set it before you. But the church needs to hear the, the kind of minister that God expects you to desire and to have in place, even with all of our fallibility and our weaknesses God here is interested in you having men of God leading, teaching, directing you, and bringing the gospel to you. And you need to stop and just think about this question. It's one of those questions that when it's asked, I know it can have a lot of different answers and responses to it. But what do you think is the greatest need that you have of that person. What's the greatest need you have of that person who would rule over you? Or to put it in another way, what do you think is the most important thing to be looking at concerning a man who would rule over you? And many, when they... Think about uh, a pastor or elders being in place over them. They look at such things as leadership skills, whether or not they're sensible people, 
whether they're fair, whether they have compassion for the little guy, integrity. I'm not talking here even just about the pastor. Think about it in respect of government, in respect of parents. But let's be very specific. What is the greatest need that you have as a person who would be your pastor and elder? And if you're thinking biblically, your mind should be going to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And, and what does Paul say there about those who would desire to occupy that role of, of eldership, bishop, overseer, minister in your church? Is that he should be what? Blameless. Blameless. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't begin with a man who's gone through seminary and garnered that great degree that we all do expect and require of such. That he should be blameless. And if you were to turn to 1 Timothy 3, you would see he goes on to list 13 character qualities about that blamelessness. That means that this is a man who should be without fault. You should not be able to accuse them. And he goes on to say the husband of one wife, he should be sober, temperate. He needs to be self-controlled, modest, hospitable, a teacher, uh, not addicted to substances, not violent, not greedy, gentle, not argumentative, not covetousness, having an orderly, reverent home. He needs to be blameless. Paul here is, is echoing that point even before he wrote 1 Timothy. He's looking at this young church that has only been going on for a few months, under a year, and, and has been faced with much persecution, much affliction. But he's saying to them, do you understand what makes for a good man of God that you should be following and imitating? Now, why would he say that? Because even by that particular time in the life of the church, we're talking about 20 years, not even 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, there were many false prophets going about proclaiming that they came in the name of the Lord and who were defaming the apostles who were being afflicted and persecuted and having a hard go at it and, and, and putting themselves on a pedestal before the people whose goal was to fill their own belly with a following. Everybody loves the following. You don't believe that? Just look at Twitter, Instagram. And listen to people as they compare how many people are following you. We want to follow him. Why? Because we want, we want to be recognized. But what makes for a good minister? And here Paul is instructing the church, as we heard last week, what made for a genuine gospel ministry and how important leadership was to that. What makes for genuine gospel ministry within our church. And again, what do you look for in respect of that? And, and for most, and I'm not saying these things are wrong in and of themselves, but for most of us, our attention always focuses on those things that will meet our needs. 
as opposed to the one who in leadership is conducting the ministry of the Word of God. And Paul here is focusing uh, on what is necessary to genuine gospel ministry. We heard last week a courageous ministry that does not seek to please men or to please society, but that seeks to please God. That often will stand in contrariness to society and to men who are not of God. A God-focused gospel ministry where Christ is at the very heart of it. And to have that kind of ministry takes courage. Because we live in a world, and in particular, we live in a country that does not respect the Christian faith anymore. That is self-evident. But not only that, it's to be a gentle ministry. You're not to be harsh and combative, but rather self-sacrificing and exercising a sincerity that these are things that you really believe. And, and this morning, we, we conclude that understanding of what makes for a gentle gospel ministry and, and Paul's focus here in verses 10 to 12 is a blameless ministry. A blameless ministry. A ministry that does not have scandal or corruption or shameful conduct attached to it. A ministry that is patterned after Christ. It, it is most interesting when you read the Gospels. That the very same people that Jesus did all of that good work unto. All of the healings. All of the miracles that he had performed. That when it came to that point of him being put to death. Many of those same people were gathered as a crowd that was shouting out crucify him, crucify him. And when he was brought before Pilate, you read it in Luke 23, what was the pattern of Christ? When Pilate examined him three times, the number three expressing wholeness, fullness, completeness, he was examined completely. And what was the verdict? I find no fault in this man. This is a man who is blameless. And a blameless man will have a blameless ministry. That doesn't mean that people won't try to find wrong with him. It doesn't mean that you won't experience affliction. But it does mean that you have a good behavior before God that honors him and brings a testimony of the distinction between light and darkness spiritually in this world. And, and even as I am here speaking about a blameless ministry and a blameless minister, it applies to all of you because we are told earlier in this text that, that this is the imitation that we are called to seek after. Your, if you're going to imitate someone, they, they ought to be blameless. It doesn't mean, again, sinless. It doesn't mean without error. It doesn't mean they're not going to say something wrong. We're fallible. We're weak. But there is something that 
represents a blameless ministry. And we find that in verses 10, 11, and 12. And the first thing that we see is there is a godly conduct to blamelessness. A godly conduct. This is what you and I are called to exercise in our lives. A holiness that honors God. Now, I didn't really give you the full answer to that question earlier. I was saving it for this point. But what would you think is the greatest need that you have of a person who would be your minister? In other words, when you're looking at me, what is the greatest need that you place upon me to have and to exercise before you as a congregation? An old Scottish minister who had a very brief ministry, but a very powerful one, Robert Murray McChain, said this, My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Think about that. Parents, think about it for your children. What are your children's greatest need of you as Christian parents? And you who would have influence over others who are younger in the faith. What do you think is your greatest need for them? Personal holiness. And Paul brings us here. He he puts it as a statement. But he's teaching this truth. You are witnesses and God also. He's talking about a personal holiness that you may not see going on. What you see of the individual before your eyes ought to be a truer thing of who they are when you don't see them. But as he begins verse 10, he says, You are witnesses in God also. God knows my personal holiness. God sees who I am in the darkness of the night when no one else sees who I am. He's a witness of this. And we can pretend holiness before other people. But my friends, you can only do that so long before it breaks down if it is not an ingrained holiness in your soul. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. A godly conduct is what verse 10 is all about. And this is true of any spiritual leader. A pastor, an elder, a father, a mother, any person who seeks to promote the spiritual well-being of other believers needs to be focused on this. And I have to say, it's tragic and even disheartening to see Christians follow those who have been disqualified from office. But to think that because they've repented of their sins... That that's okay, whatever scandal they may have conducted while they were in that office over us in the church. As long as they've repented, they can go back to it. That's not the case. There is a disqualification that comes when corruption and scandal and shameful conduct attach themselves to those who would be overseers of the church. And yet so many today are willing to set aside things like adultery, things like like, uh, theft 
and embezzlement because they repented. If they truly repented, they would heed God's word that admits to their disqualification and go and do something else. That's strong. But that's the language of Scripture. That not many of you be teachers because you will have a stricter judgment. So what makes for that holiness, that personal holiness and godly conduct? Well, he lists three things there in verse 10. The first being devout. He is devout. How devout we were uh, and how we behaved ourselves among you as devout men. You could see in his life that Paul was devoted to God. That there was this godly piety and commitment to the Lord Jesus. It just filled his life and flowed out from him. And how do you hear that? How do you see that? Well, he's already said in in other ways when he was courageously preaching Christ in the face of persecution, that when he was attacked, he did not return that attack. He he had a gentle ministry. He wasn't uh, harsh and combative. He was self-sacrificing, sincere. You could hear him speak God all the time. God speak. You look at one's life. When you think about what goes on in your life and some of the trials that you have had and you enter into those trials with a knowledge. God has ordained this and you can share and speak that to other people when something hard comes along and to say, well, you know, God has set this before me as something that I must go through. And so I'm looking to him for strength and help. There's a devotion to God. It comes out of the heart. It's not hard to see or hear. And how you think again in, in your own homes, how important such a devotion to God shines in, in, in your homes before your children when hard things happen, when disease or such infirmities come your way, or when you have that major financial expense and you find yourself struggling. The Lord will see us through this. We're trusting in God. He's our strength. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, that it isn't hard to go through. But there's a devotion to God. And and not only that devotion, that devoutness to God, there's a behavior that is just. How devoutly and justly we behaved ourselves. There wasn't this spirit of lawlessness or rowdiness. This pattern of sin that keeps cropping up, whether it's what Paul would write in Colossians 3 about the sexual immoral sins that uh, creep their way in, or covetousness, or as he gets down to that second list, because I always remark there's two lists there. The first list we can look at, and most of us would say, well, I'm not an idolater, sexually immoral, and covetous person. Well, get down to the second list, and what's the very first one? Who's first uh, word there in Colossians 3? He's not angry. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> we fall short, don't we? There's a justness, and that word justness can also be translated a righteousness that comes into action in their behavior. 
Jesus exercised it. It it's always amazes me in 1 Peter 2, at the end there, where he starts talking about how Jesus, even when he was reviled, did not revile in return. How many of us are successful at that? <laughs> yeah, it's hard, isn't it? And yet that was Christ. He was just. But if there's this pattern of sin in one's life or pattern of sin against others, it's not godly. And the last one there, blameless. And here again, this is, this is a, a word that, that speaks about someone who doesn't have skeletons in their closet. <laughs> you know how many people, once someone becomes prominent, love to go back into someone's Facebook postings, however far back they, they can look and see what they've put up online and bring it out and lay it before people. That's what this word is dealing with. And, and there is to be a blamelessness and honesty and integrity, a godliness before the world, like Daniel, like Daniel, we can't find anything wrong with this man. We hate him. We want him out of our face. If we're going to find anything wrong with him, it's got to be with his religion. We've got to show how devoted he is to his God and make it look scandalous before the people. What would it be if that's how the world tried to capture us? There's such a godliness about God's church that the world would like to say, you know what, there's a person who prays to his God three times every day, and we're going to use that against him so that we can get him thrown into the lion's den. That's godly conduct. And you're probably thinking, Pastor, no one is like that. Well, Daniel was like that, and a few others were. You think of the hymn, Dare to be a Daniel. But let me encourage you, dear friends, you look at Titus 2, and, and you read in verses 11 to 14, and you will see that God is saying, this is what I've redeemed you unto. Now, granted, some of us who come to faith later in our years may find we have skeletons and say, wow, you, you can find a lot about me. But here's the thing, in Christ, there is this renewal and rebirth where we are casting off those things because it's no longer part of our lives. And in God's presence, that no longer defines us. And these words from Titus 2 teaches us that very truth that Christ has come to make us such new creations where this godly conduct can now explode from our lives before the world. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we deny those things. They are no longer part of who we are. That we live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, so that he, not we, so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous 
for good works. That's who we are. A people redeemed. A people purified in the blood of Christ. A people who have been made holy by God and who now stand in the holiness of their God to live for His glory. This is not beyond us. But it does take that exercise of faith and labor every day to commit yourself to the Lord. God, help me. Help me to be godly for you. And He's at work in you for that purpose. So it begins, blameless gospel ministry be, begins with godly conduct. Secondly, it, it, it attaches a fatherly care to it, as you see in verse 11. Because it doesn't mean that we just continue on in our relationships with one another, pretending that we're all such holy and godly people. A blameless ministry takes a fatherly care in other people's lives. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children. You know, you go back to uh, verse uh, 7, and Jesus, uh, sorry, well, Jesus, God wrote this uh, through Paul. Uh, he reminded us how we are to have the gentleness of a nursing mother. But here he's telling us that we are to exercise a compassionate care like a father. Now, how many of you ever think of fathers having compassion and pity? For, for people. We always think in our modern minds that the father is the emblem of authority and discipline and structure. But scripture presents the picture of the father as one who understands the struggle of their children and is compassionate toward them. Isn't that different? If gentleness was exemplified by a mother... Nurturing care for people is exampled by fathers. A Christ-like character. Think of Psalm 113, uh, sorry, 103, verse 13. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he, the father, knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It's interesting that that's also one of the titles given to the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 9. The Son of God who is the wonderful counselor. And what? The everlasting Father. Jesus behaved in such a manner to his people. Why? Because he knows our frame. He knows that we are fallen men and women. He knows that we are a people fallen in sin. He knows that we are every day struggling with that nature of sin within our very soul. He doesn't forget that. Which is why His mercies to us endure forever, day after day after day. You can come back to God after committing that sin of anger against someone Ten times in a day and say, God, why did I do that again? Please forgive me. And he will say, you are forgiven. 
not just because you echoed those words, but there's a sincerity in your heart that is saying, God, I struggle with this habitual sin. Can you bring me relief from it? He remembers that we are dust. We're struggling with this. And he says that a blameless ministry will also have this fatherly care. You know how it says of Jesus, when he tells us to come to him, when we are burdened and heavy laden, and he's the one who will give us rest, why does he say come to him? He says, because I am what? I'm gentle. I'm lowly. I can meet you in your troubles, in your sins, in those heavy weights that you are bearing, and I will be merciful. And it's that compassion of Christ that guards how godly men would do the things that are here that are part of this fatherly care. And again, there's three things here that belong to a fatherly care. The first one is exhorting. How we exhorted you. That is, how we addressed and admonished those sinful tendencies. I'll confess, but I I dare to say my confession here is going to be one that I'm sure many of you have uh, echoed these words, but how many times when we're dealing with our children who have done the same thing five times in one day that we come in that fourth and fifth time with that anger. I've already told you a hundred times not to do this. What's going on with you? That's not a blameless ministry. That's not fatherly care. But we've all done it. We know those frustrations. Thank God we have a God and Savior who does not get so frustrated. But there's our imitation to come and to exhort, to address it, and to be faithful. Sometimes we confuse our kids as parents. One day it's okay for them to disobey us in a certain way, and because we're having a good day and feeling really good about it, we just simply say, look, don't do that. But if they were to do the same thing the next day when we're grumpy, we wake up tired and exhausted and we've got a heavy load on the day and we say, I have no time for this. (laughs) We're fickle. We have those struggles. But a fatherly care is someone who is being faithful to address and admonish these tendencies in gentleness. Just as the Lord deals with us. And who encourages that word comforted And in the New King James, it means to be encouraged. Who very kindly and peaceably and earnestly helps to uh, encourage someone with the word of God. Comes and meets that one. Look, this is what God's word says you are to do. It's not enough for you to just simply stop lying. But you need to start learning to work with your hands. Or, I'm sorry, to tell the truth. It's not enough... For you to just stop stealing. You need to work with your hands and do good and then contribute to people. It's not enough for you to stop lusting in your thoughts. You need to replace those thoughts with God's word and and the spirit of holiness. Fatherly care comes to encourage you in that way. And it's always through the ministry of God's word. If somebody is ministering to you, And they don't bring God's word into it. My friends, that is nothing more than self-help moralism. And it will fall short. 
but it's the ministry of God's word that meets you. And it's what you are to desire, to lay aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all evil speaking. How are you going to lay aside all of that? First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you are in Christ, what is your greatest help to lay aside that anger, lying, hypocrisy, envy, evil speech. God's word. The blameless ministry is not telling you, just try to do better. It's taking you to God's word and says, here's what God's word is purpose to help lead you in. And all the spirit of God, if he sees God's word in your mind, he's going to use that with power. That's the Christian life. And to charge. Yes, you can compassionately admonish someone about what is true. You can compassionately deal with people who are caught up in grave sins or in the secular sins of our society today and challenge them with what is true and charge them that these things do not belong to God's people. To his church. And fatherly care. It's just like a parent. Watching their child devolve into. Into drugs. And alcohol. We're just going to sit back. And fold our arms and say. Well they've made their choices. No you're going to come. You're going to do everything in your power. To rescue them. That fatherly care is the work of Christ within us to to help one another in our life and walk. And the last thing that we see, it's a godly conduct of fatherly care, but it's also promoting that worthy calling, that worthy calling that we have. My friends, the greatest desire any ministry should have for your life in Christ is for you to walk worthy of God's calling upon your life. Do you know where you are headed if you are in Christ? Does that captivate your heart? Look what he says there in verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. My dear friends, do you realize what grace has come to meet you from the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you should now have your feet standing in his kingdom. That ought to amaze your heart every day. You ought to be waking up and saying, Father, I thank you that for all that I am and for all that I have done, you have loved me and planted my feet in your kingdom and nothing can snatch me out. What a glory. Help me to walk worthy of that calling. Let me understand what you have in store for me. God has called you into his kingdom, dear Christian. Do you realize what that means for you? It means that you in Christ Jesus have eternal life. You don't fear death. You can die today and you know 
where you are headed for all eternity. (laughs) That you have been justified. That in Christ, the Father has pardoned all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins. He will not hold a sin against you that would keep you out of his kingdom and under his wrath. Isn't that amazing? That is, to me, the most absolute amazing thing about God's grace. He has adopted you. He has said that this wretched, unworthy, undeserving sinner is now going to be one of my children. You were once children of wrath. You were once a people who in the deadness of your sins were under that wrath and judgment of eternal death. And God has said, no, I want you. Isn't that amazing? He's healing you. Ever wonder why in your soul you hate sin? Ever wonder sometimes when you think about your past, you look and you just think, oh, how wicked I was. And it, and, and it brings pain. He's called you into his kingdom to heal you. There's going to be a day when we look back and we can say, I remember my youthful sins no more. And immortality and incorruption. He's called you into his kingdom. He's called you into his glory. He has so saved you in the Lord Jesus that you will be one who not only abides in his presence, but you will abide in his glory. And again, this is something that is hard to imagine. But here's how the Lord Jesus expressed it. That you, his righteous ones, the ones whom he has redeemed, will in that eternity shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of your father. You will have such a glory upon you that you will be as the sun shining in glory. How many of you have ever on a warm, sunny day, tried to look at the sun for more than 10 seconds. What happens to your eyes? They get sore. They feel like they're burning. We are going to shine forth like the sun in this kingdom. And what he says to all of you, to all of us, is that knowing Knowing that truth, God has called you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy of that. Fix your eyes on eternity. Set your hope there. As Paul would say in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. Where Christ is. Because this is what is waiting for you in the Lord. Now my friends... It's only waiting for those who know Christ. I would be so bold to say that if this hasn't excited your heart, that perhaps you're struggling in your walk with Christ today. Perhaps you don't know Christ as you ought. Perhaps you're pretending to be in Christ 
and it's not real. My friends, for you today, that this is a time for you to make certain, to know what it is to be in Christ. Put your hope of salvation in him, to believe in his sacrifice for your sins, to believe that he indeed endured that death that you deserve so that you might have that life with God forever. This is a time for you to search your hearts, to know Christ, to come to him in faith and repentance and know for certain you are in his kingdom and in his glory. I urge you to that Because, my friends, none of you know how much life you have left on this earth. None of you know what tomorrow holds for you. Come to the Lord. He offers himself so freely. Come to me and live. Why should you die? Repent and believe for all who call upon his name. You will be saved. Those are his promises. He will bring forth his glory in your life. He will bring forth that blamelessness of Christ.